0: There's Always a FinReg Angle, the podcast providing you with the latest news and commentary on financial regulation. Brought to you by Global Custodian.
1: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Season 2 of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually, as always, by a cast of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy, Virginia O'Shea and Joe Parsons. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Hello. Wow, we've got a lot to catch up on today. We're particularly looking at, well, how to say and pronounce Archegos capital, and then talking about the, the saga, the, the, the debate, the scandal, the debacle that's been going on, call it whatever you like. Um, we're going to talk through what happened and the, uh, the possible regulatory fallout from that. Uh, plus, we're going to look at how regulators are policing individuals when it comes to compliance and governance. Our regime, such as the SMRC working to deter bad behavior or not. But first of all, Sean, I saw on Twitter you were trying to get onto Vlad from Robin Hood's podcast. What were you going to talk to him about if you get on the show?
2: I, th- I was trying to, I'm trying to grassroots campaign to discuss uh, the, the virtues of T plus one versus T plus zero. But so far to, to no avail.
0: <laughs> is, it, is this because you weren't picked as the uh, SEC chair, you're now sort of trying to sabotage uh, other sort
1: of grassroots
2: yeah, I mean that that still stings to be honest, Joe. Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, how long? I mean, how long do you reckon Ginza's Gen- got in his tenure? Or is it
2: going to last the whole of Biden's presidency? I mean, typically, the SEC chairs stick around for the like at least the entire first term. I mean, so I think he probably, I think expectations are he'll be around for three or four years, depending.
1: Oh, that's that's tough on you, Sean.
2: Maybe a CFTC position, isn't it? That-
1: that's still open
2: yeah so I got my fingers crossed
1: yeah um, just make sure in the contract you can still do there's always a fin reg angle podcast
2: oh, of course
1: <laughs> you know um, if, uh, if if we had our uh, ducks in a row in time we would have done some kind of super league episode of uh, of there's always a fin reg angle today but we just couldn't quite get that prepared in time so uh, we'll have to stick with uh, the, with sec bitcoin etfs you know the, the usual so
0: when we have a big six regulators and then, then we question
1: uh why is the occ in there <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah which which uh, regulators are going to be on the cast what do you think would would baffin make it joe Baffin <laughs> are the Tottenham of uh, of regulators, aren't they? <laughs> we, we, we've got to do, We've got to stop doing such niche cultural references. Sorry uh, to anyone outside of Europe listening to the, this episode. Um, uh, how's everyone been? It's been a while since we've caught up. Um, Virginia, have you been able to enjoy a bit more of the UK's freedom and, and get out for a, a proper drink in, in a bar?
3: Not so far. No? no, not so far. I've not been. I've been. I've, I've been doing my usual walking and stuff, but I'm, and. Uh caught up with people outside but not in a pub yet i've i've uh, i've yet to experience pub
1: a, a pub pubs and haircuts is the new topic of conversations isn't it <laughs> Th-
3: thrills thrill thrill a minute isn't it
1: really I know, exciting <laughs> time so um first up is Archigos. joe am i even saying that right oh who knows Archigos. Of... A- a-
0: a- Arch- who
1: knows capital but in in joe in, in 60 seconds could you explain to our listeners what happened
0: yeah, of course. So, so yeah, this was basically a family office um, in the US that pretty much sort of blew up uh, and 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 took a load of other sort of prime brokers with it, really. So, it had this, um, you know, twelve billion of uh, or twenty billion, sorry, of, of 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 US and and sort of Chinese tech um, stocks that that they sort of triggered a, a, a fire sale once once their uh, values are going down and and. This sort of raised a lot of questions about those sort of prime brokers that had provided financing for this firm to to buy all these stocks, um, uh, and to lever- the amount of leverage that were that were given to this sort of fund to you know buy up to buy up such a huge huge portfolio, and then uh, when that portfolio collapsed, the billions that it's lost um, for for some of the big sort of prime brokers. I mean, I mean. This was probably a fun crisis, really, to watch. I don't know if that was such a thing, but just to see what was the the, the Twitter coverage on this and the the fake Bill Huang uh, Twitter profiles. I mean, they really were genius.
1: (laughs) I guess it depends what uh, what angle you're looking at it from, but yeah, I I know what you mean, Joe. It was it kept unraveling as well, didn't it? Uh, You know, new the the numbers and who did what prior to, to it all blowing up. Um, but you, you've spoken to, to people about, uh, you've spoken with Prime specifically in this area um, about this in the past. Um, you know, did, did what led up to this? Was it quite standard stuff? I mean, it's quite standard because the hedge funds always get leverage from prime
0: brokers. I mean, they, they, they need leverage to um, go into some of these more complicated future trades and, and, and other sort of kind of derivatives trades. And it's a standard practice, um, and and it has been, you know, extremely profitable for you know, for the big banks. But it, it does sort of pose the question about um, the kind of sort of risk module models that that, that these prime brokers have, have put in place um, in, in order to you know, to give to, to give sort of the the, the, the financing and, and also some of the margin arrangements around um, that the hedge fund relationships. So, so I guess it's it's it questionable if, if, of of how much they price leverage, um, and you know, do they give this out to um, hedge funds and family offices quite cheaply, depending on the kind of risk that these guys are uh, investing in? And then, you know, if, if they're giving them, I think with archigos it was about twenty-five to one, something ridiculous. Um, uh, did they price this effectively and, and probably evidently not because You've got Credit Suisse losing, is it four point seven billion, and then Nomura about estimated about two billion. Um, you yeah, know, overall, it it does definitely pose new questions about um, what financing a a, a prime is going to make available, and also if the regulators are going to get involved as well. They're going to have to to you know really crack down on the, sort of, maybe some of the financing practices of uh, prime brokers, do they revisit um, Basel III and maybe some of the capital rules around it as well? And, and what sort of levels of transparency can they can they, uh, can they they bring in for this?
1: Oh, it goes deep. So what you're saying at the end there, Joe, is there's always a Finreg angle. I like it. There's always yeah. a Finreg angle, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we'll open it up for uh, Sean and Virginia. What, what do you think, Wes?
3: It's... It's worth pointing out, I just want to jump in. It's worth pointing out, though, if UMR had come into force, right, <laughs> as it was planned to on time, then they would have been caught by it, yes. right? So, I mean, in terms of, of regulating hedge funds posing as family offices, because it was like uh, it used to be yeah. a hedge fund, right? And they got rebranded conveniently into a family office. Um, it would have been caught by those rules. Likewise, if the SEC had got its act in in, in gear when it came into implementing Dodd-Frank, there would have been more reporting around the, the specific t- total return swaps, which fall under the SEC purview, importantly, not the CFTC purview. Um, we would have had more transparency around what was going on. So I'm not sure that it's it's... What's the word? It's it's not lack of regulations; it's lack of mm. enforce, or like lack of them coming into force at the correct points in time. I I would say, in my eyes, i sure might not agree, but that's that's the way I kind of looked at it.
2: Yeah, no, I think so I'm sort of <clears throat> leaving aside the question of prime brokerage. That's a discussion for a different day and for a different person, to be honest. But I think the regulatory angle, looking at it from the the fund side of it, um, I think it. I think Virginia is 100% correct about that there are sort of rules in train that would have made this harder or easier to catch and I but I also think it will raise questions on two points. One, it brings up the idea of embedded leverage in funds, which is something that always gets macroprudential regulators all riled up. Um and something Janet Yellen has sort of already pointed out in her first fsoc meeting that needs to be sort of further investigated. And then I think there will also be questions around the sort of fan, so-called family office exemption, right? So um, when Dodd Frank came in, um, the way to get away from the way to escape some of the more onerous burden of Dodd Frank was to rebrand as a, a hedge funds into family offices, and that's so where that got him out a lot of, of a lot of Dodd Frank reporting. So I think there will be calls um, for that to that that uh, exception to be tightened up. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how the SEC in particular reacts. Um, But I think it should be pointed out that like as dramatic as it was, it was a big story. It was also a relatively non-event in the market sense, which I think probably gives everyone, the regulatory community can sort of take comfort from that. This wasn't another uh, long-term capital management or a similar market event.
0: Yeah. I mean, the big thing was that nothing, nothing that happened was, illegal really or was or um, that' we've probably seen from maybe other crisis you know, 2008 maybe so yeah probably all, all this would get um, you know captured probably by sort of incoming regulation if it was supposed to be implemented in time so yeah I mean and 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 it does just, just reinforce maybe some of the other bigger players who were, who were able to to, you know, to act quicker um I think I think that where Goldman Sachs CEO earlier today um uh, earlier last week mentioned that that their the, the risk modules were, models were, were you know captured the 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 collapse, you know, pretty well when they were relatively unscathed and, and morgan stanley um also said something similar um but yeah it probably it, i mean at the end of the day it, it would um i think from the from a business business point of view you know, probably force firms to really look at their risk practices and, uh, uh, and, and you know, how they tie in financing and, and, and leverage into it.
3: A surprising number of firms don't have anywhere near real-time risk position, you know, position-keeping or, or data. So, I mean, this is that's where you kind of get a, an indication as to who, <laughs> who might have been caught caught out by that. Um, and
0: also, like, how much transparency do the prime brokers get into what their hedge funds are investing in as well? so maybe may may you know maybe you' would get um you know different new measures as well to try and you know give prime brokers a a a a better insight into what
1: kind of instruments that 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 hedge funds are using they're using i mean i guess do you feel about this and some of the other things that happen that you know things like this are gonna happen in the markets right um you know not playing with peanuts here and <laughs> it's uh yeah, there's there's not much regulators can do on, on some occasions. Uh, try as they may, it's yeah you can't be act you can't react to every single thing that happens. I guess that's a, a kind of bigger picture look at a regular market regulation.
2: Yeah, and I think the to the long uh <clears throat> the idea is that the system is set up that when an event like this happens, which is unfortunate, no one wants it to, but it, there's no contagion; it doesn't end up becoming a bigger market event. So I think in that way. The, the sort of post GFC framework sort of held up remarkably well.
1: I, I guess the last question, Joe, you mentioned some numbers, which was, was very well remembered, um, you know, maybe Joe for you or, or Ginny, you know, is, is there any reputational damage on, on these banks as, as prime brokers that they suffer because of this and that might impact the, the, the clients that weren't affected and how they view their prime broker relationships?
3: I don't think so personally, you know, um, I, I think there's enough blame to go around to be pushed to other things, right? It may it may some you know savvier, um clients may ask questions about you know investment in systems and and monitoring and risk management, but I mean I don't I don't think it's it's been that bad for any of the the prime brokers. I mean aside from the, the monetary costs of it in in this instance, because it's not like they've been sort of pointed out by the regulator as as sort of examples of. of bad market practices right um which is where the reputational risk tends to lie more more often
0: yeah of course so that, that, that it's i think we even saw it sort of similar at the beginning of last year with uh, um you know after the the, the the global pandemic that probably one of the first things that hedge funds did was 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 call their prime brokers and see that they still up and running mm-hmm. um especially with the margin calls that, that were really happening at the time um and that's and that's all, you know the, the memories of 2008 still very much fresh um, in everyone's mind. So I uh, you know, probably no doubt that after this happened that, that 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 a lot of hedge funds you know called up their, their main prime brokers and, and asked how exposed are you? Um, what, you know, what what are you doing to, to you know, minimise the damage? But but again, I I, I still don't think that, that there would be a lot of change in, in, in the prime brokerage and hedge fund relationship. But I did. I, I did find it funny. I think there was an FT article asking the question: Is Credit Suisse the new Deutsche Bank? Because it, yeah, they had yeah, the Gensil stuff as well. But then also Deutsche Bank just sort of had a hold my beer moment, and, and was it they got a, a board member who's now accused of insider trading or something like that?
3: At the KYC side, yeah. That I mean, I suppose that that does expose them to look a little bit daft, but. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> it happens a fair amount, so yeah. it's not an isolated incident here, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, that's that's interesting, and um, I guess we'll draw a line under it. Did we? Did we land on uh, pronunciation in the end?
3: I thought it was Archagos, but I could be wrong.
0: I think it was Ar- Archaeagos. I think yeah. it's a silent. I think there's a silent <laughs> J in there. <laughs> it's like Yargon.
3: It's it's biblical, isn't it? I think it's it's some sort of biblical word. It is because
0: he's a he's a a big sort. Of He's very, very religious. I think he made most of his staff sort of take, you um, know, do sort of morning sermons and stuff like that and read from the Bible. So that, I think that is, uh, that is from
3: it. Well, they were praying at one point, weren't
1: they? <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Um, okay, look, we've got a few other things to get on to. I guess we'll uh, let, let's wrap up some uh, some other news bits. Sean, you, you mentioned that the Lesmer come out with some, uh, some new money market stuff. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about the updates there?
2: Yeah, so obviously this was completely expected and part of sort of the uh, <clears throat> the covid uh, post-mortem that regulators are doing and it follows what the SEC did about a month earlier so as was released consultation looking at potential um, vulnerabilities in the money market fund industry and potential changes and and honestly it's it follows it tracks very closely to what the SEC is sort of contemplating as well which is I suppose heartening for sort of global, asset managers and i think the the big honestly the big question that is yet to be answered is should sort of constant at money market funds continue to exist and so every time there's a, a sort of a, a market event in the mar- money market industry this this question keeps coming back um, and to date the industry has done well to sort of prove the the, the benefit of constant app funds outweighs the cost but i think it will be a steeper hell this time and i think as you look at regulators in Brussels, Paris, and, and DC, there might be a, a strong, stronger inclination to sort of limit um, at the very least, if not restrict uh, constant NAV funds. So that's sort of something the industry will need to sort of deal with in, a, in the consultation period to see where where we land. And there seems to be sort of, you know, of interest and changes around,
0: around liability and, and um, around NAV as well. Could you to explain a little bit more about those?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things this is unique to Europe. So in Europe, the, um, during the last round of money market fund reform, they had banned all forms of sponsor support essentially. Um, so if a fund ran into trouble, the sponsor couldn't couldn't help the fund out um, in any way. Um, and there's now been reconsideration of that approach, wondering if that's you know to the benefit of the wider financial system and to investors um to sort of prohibit uh sponsors from sort of providing liquidity to their funds in times of stress so that's one of the i mean that would be a net positive for for the industry who sort of argued um it needs be they should be allowed to sort of support their funds so it'll be interesting to see to where that um where that takes us and i think the, the only other thing that's interesting i mean to nerds like me about money market fund reform is that it's, it's it's important to note that no European funds require any sort of government action or backstop um, directly, um, but ESMA sort of admits and acknowledges that the actions by the U.S. Federal Reserve to sort of calm the markets in the U.S. for U.S. money market funds had a knock-on impact uh, to help stabilize things for European uh, money market funds. So it's a good acknowledgement of sort of the interconnectivity um, of the system and hopefully if nothing else will lead to um relatively synced up uh reform so does it make it more
0: sort of aligned then with maybe the the us money market framework
2: yeah i mean we'll have to wait and see where it ends up to be honest joe but like i think the proposals from both uh, the us and europe for potential reforms and we're still a mile away from sort of real proposals um are very much aligned and in fairness the last round of money market reform was pretty well um aligned between europe and the us too so i think in terms of asset management regulation it's one of the areas where there is a certain a higher degree of sort of harmonization or at the very least cooperation
1: thanks sure um i guess let me spin the wheel of always a thin reg angle <laughs> topics and see where it lands this wheel consists of like ESG, Gary Gensler, um, Settlement Discipline Regime, Bitcoin ETFs. Actually, let's go to Settlement Discipline Regime. That's where it landed. The wheel was spun as I was speaking. Um, (laughs) I I think just after we recorded the last podcast, we had that the next trends, risks, and vulnerabilities report came out from from ESMA, didn't it? And they showed that at the end of 2020, the the assessment rate failure rates were still, I think this was for equities, they're still particularly high. Um, yeah, maybe not quite as high as H one, you know, in, in March in, in twenty twenty, but still higher than the year before. Um, Virginia, I know you love this stuff and big fan of the TRB report. <laughs> um, you know, I guess we'll get another one soon. But at what point do we hit an old moment when, uh, yeah, these rates are still particularly high as we move towards the the SDR implementation?
3: I am actually, this is a bugbear for me, I'm actually chasing Esmer about those numbers at the moment. Oh, OK.
1: I've <laughs> um, got,
3: the, I, I got <laughs> the numbers for the last one, the last TRV report, but I haven't yet got an understanding of where these ones have come from. So um, I want to understand sort of what the inputs have been, because that's, again, not clear to me, because the way that you measure settlement, fail, there could be a lot of different variables there. That I want, and I want to. They, they attribute it to national competent authorities, but um, I'm assuming a lot of it's come from CSDS and things like that.
1: So, yeah. um, so does it but, take into account CCPS as well?
3: Right, I mean, there's a lot of um, we don't it, you don't know <laughs> essentially. So that's where I'm I'm wanting to to find out, and they have they've been dodging me. So um, I am hounding Esmer at the moment. Hopefully, I will find that out before the next episode. But um, part of of what I'm interested in finding out is is I mean, I'm trying to correlate it with market practices, and and depending on how they're measuring it, it could it could mean different things, right? Um, and in te- you know rule of thumb in terms of settlement fails is that you've got sort of roughly 20 to 30% sort of related to data, poor data quality, and the rest is usually people being short on something, either casual securities. Um, so I, I'm expecting <clears throat> it could be something to do with securities lending issues, securities financing problems um, that are ongoing, it could be to do with a higher volume of trade that's been, you know, the, the trade volumes have not gone down, they, they spiked, but they didn't go down. So it could be to do with the manual processes, for a higher number, a higher volume of trades that you're dealing with manual processes in trade support in the middle office um and it could be problems with regards to volume you're having problems in the back office in terms of of support for that volume because you've got a legacy system that just isn't coping very well so um it could be any number of things at the moment i'm just trying to figure out what the most common problem is going to be um so i'm digging into that as part of my research at the moment
1: I guess for the many, many, many organizations that, that are anti-buying rules, um, this is another thing for them to, to arm themselves with. Uh, Sean, I, I, I don't know if you, well, I imagine you did see the, the results of the consultation for, for SDR. Um, was it just a lot of people you know, talking about scaling back the, the buying regime or people calling for, for further delays in this?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was essentially the same responses that have been shouted out into the void for the last two years. Um, So it remains to be seen where that lands. But I think those who are predisposed to want this scaled back or eliminated are still predisposed to that. Those who think it will be a bulwark for market integrity would like it to come in. So I think we'll probably land somewhere in the middle. Um, But I, I, I totally agree that depending on the point about how these numbers are actually calculated. But as fail rate, if fail rates continue to be high, it does give the people pushing for changes to significant changes to the regime um, ammunition, if you will.
1: So uh, I guess we can spin the wheel again, and uh, <laughs> Joe, let's let's assume it lands on uh, on uh, the SEC, or not necessarily Joe. Anyone uh, lands on the SEC, and and we've had Gary Gensler officially sworn in, isn't that right?
0: Is that this wheel of fortune? Could we just do it like like some sort of like thin reg Jeopardy? It could be us like the, the, the answer is new SEC chairman. What is Gary Gensler?
3: <laughs> Depends on who you ask.
0: <laughs> yeah, very true.
1: Good. Okay, well that that's pretty much that there. And um yeah, I think we've we've seen his new team line up as well. Um any any ESG updates? Um, Virginie, since last time we spoke because we're just covering everything today apparently
3: um i mean esG fund I'm sure I think they've they've just the the fed appointed somebody to take over sort of the climate um czar role uh, and they've picked someone with no Finrec experience go figure could have been could have been you sean should have been you <laughs> another one where always it, oh, a bridesmaid never a, never the bride there. <laughs> <laughs> Be interesting to see how they do, how they fare on on the hill um, with no FinReg experience and, and having to push a topic that's really quite controversial in some corners um, will be will be tough, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, I agree, and I think more broadly, we're seeing the U.S. and this ties into the Gensler um, sort of regime that ESG is rocketing up the um, the priority list in the U.S. So obviously, that's something that the total the industry should be paying. Sort of more more close attention to than we have in the last couple of years. And then the only other ESG thing I would note on the EU side is the sort of taxonomy debate continues and it really shows the struggle of how you create sort of harmonized um, definitions. So currently, the commission has suggested making natural gas a sustainable um, business, which has sort of enraged um the environmental lobby so it really kind of shows the challenges of creating this this idea of a taxonomy which i think everyone in the industry would love um it's just sort of how do you get there as a challenge so i think we'll sort of there'll be a lot to come out between now and june um on the european esg side and because they're so far ahead as we've discussed before it's probably going to be sort of the setting the pace on sort of a more global level
3: They've got is it 11 regulatory technical standards documents to put out, and I've, they've done three so far, or something like that, right? We've got a lot of reading ahead of us.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to come. <laughs> I and mean, it's going to be, and honestly, like, and it's similar to the, the disclosure regs that came in a couple months ago. Like, it's just the timeline isn't shifting, um, but the amount of work to get there remains pretty high. So I think the industry continues to be concerned that these rules will come in. Um, before the technical standards are really locked down which just creates a, a huge challenge for everybody
1: i think we should i think we should do a live recording of um us reading through some of these for the first time <laughs> you know get the actual live reactions of, of you sean and virginia uh, as you go through each paragraph
3: <laughs> oh god that would take hours
1: hours this is what the people want we've got to give it to them <laughs> i can there'll be a lot of what does this mean what's this this doesn't make sense that, that might just be me and you reading it, Joe. Maybe, yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah, uh, uh, Sean, sure. what what does this one mean? <laughs> um, let's let's wrap up, and uh, I just want to reference quickly before we, we go. Um, Virginia, you wrote a, a piece for Global Custodian on um, on compliance fines from, from regulators recently, um, which was really popular on our site. So I just wanted to touch upon it. Um, I guess what kind of uh, world are we live in right now when it comes to to accountability, and um, I guess this. Whole topic must be quite exciting and up in the air after what's happened. You know, start of this year over the last twelve months.
3: I mean, I just think it's as there's there's regimes across the globe that I think I pointed to in the blog um, that have uh, you know trying to to foster change, cultural change around compliance and taking um, you know governance seriously and taking uh, obligations at the executive level seriously. And I think from from listening to so many of those um, discussions related to GameStop and related to all the other things that we've, we've, uh, we've experienced as an industry thus far this year. It feels like we've already had 12 months go by. Um, but uh, it, it made me think, and that's why I wrote the blog, about whether the US might go down the similar route to the UK on the senior manager certification regime. Um, Ireland's already got, what's it called, SEER, I think it's called, and Australia's got bear, which is very cute, but uh, not quite, <laughs> not not quite as cute as it sounds, uh, in terms of uh, the, uh, the the regulation. And I, I just think all of these regimes have a similar sort of impetus on on placing more emphasis on individuals. But the one thing that is you know stark is that we've only had one successful given. We it's been in place. The c r has been in place for about five years now, I think i think it came into into play in in 2015 um at or, or the end of it and uh we've only really had one successful um or public uh actual case that's gone through we've we've had apparently you know there's been lots of them <laughs> and the regulator keeps telling us that there's been lots of them but we we haven't really seen any of these fines being you know sort of given to to individuals so what does that mean for the regime? And, and do the regulators have to take a harder line? What, how could they improve their, their sort of enforcement of this stuff? That was kind of the, uh, the, um, the prece of what I wrote. but uh, I, you know I, what I find interesting is, is I think there'll be some competitiveness um, on the part of regulators to try and prove a point to the industry. I just feel that, that from from discussions that I'm hearing about you know the SEC and and the incoming um, focus on investor protection. They need to prove a point.
1: Uh, is it is it just very difficult to put accountability on certain individuals?
3: I like to call it the shaggy defence. So generally, you can pass it on by going, it wasn't me, it was somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So that that kind of works very well, unless you've done something really stupid in public, not not on a bathroom floor, hopefully. But certainly, if, if you've done something as an executive that that's put you into the public eye, and, and you can't get away from um, the, the regulator knowing that you did it then you tend, to, it's easier to, to catch you. But if, if it's something that's related to an operational practice or something related to, you know, a compliance infraction, it's it's kind of hard to pin down the executive, executive that should be held accountable for it. So I think that's what was, I, they underestimated on the part of the regulators, um, how, how difficult it would be to, to hold somebody individually to account.
1: Okay, well, that's brilliant. Thanks, Virginia. Like I said, that was a very popular piece on our website, so if you if you haven't read it yet, do go on to the opinion section of globalgustodian.com and you can see uh, that article and some of our, Virginia's other work on there uh, as well. So um, I guess before we wrap up, uh, you know, anything else from from anyone else, updates wise?
0: Yeah, of course. I'll do a little plug for GC. We've got a, a couple of webinars lined up um, in the next couple of next coming weeks. I think um, this Thursday we've got one. We've got one with IHS Market. Um, it's called from legacy to digital with security services. So I think it's looking at a lot of the um, maybe legacy tech processes in in corporate actions, tax, other sort of back office um, functions, and and how they can adapt to you know probably the most the more cutting edge and relevant technology. Um, and we've also got a uh, another webinar, a little bit a little bit uh, new to us, but this is looking at uh, FX assessment risk, and that's with CLS. And I think more details will be. Uh, published about that in in the next whole week or so.
1: Cool, good stuff Joe. Um, and before we kind of go to, to Sean, um, I would say Sean, I, I spoke to one of your colleagues, uh, Ryan Marsh from the, the DLT and digital innovation team the other day about uh, what city are doing on the digital asset side, and it was one of the best chats I've had um, on, on the topic. We, we talked everything. We talked NFTs as well, which I was really happy about. I never thought that would come up in uh, in conversation, but yeah, that's uh, that's on our homepage at the moment, titled "A World of Opportunity Evolving the Digital Asset Ecosystem," and it's it's a cracking read if I may say so myself. <laughs>
2: right.
0: I mean, you know, you know, we'll make
1: it when we sell our very first FinReg episode as an NFT. <laughs> I, do you know what? I don't even have the understanding of how that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. happen. I I say what we could use the uh, the failed video recording we did at the start today, <laughs> 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 and just clip it for three seconds and just have that on the feet. That that seems like a, a winner. <laughs> um, Sean, uh, where can we find your work?
2: Uh, as always, you can check it out at. Uh... Securities Services Insights at uh, cityvelocity.com backslash insights. And to your point, uh, John, we, do, we have a piece published recently on um, featuring uh, Mr. Marsh on DLT and some other digital custody um, and how we, we might be nearing sort of a turning the corner on some some interesting developments there. Uh, so I highly recommend people check it out.
1: Because uh, I hope Ryan's listening. Plenty of plugs for him today. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Virginie, when you're not hassling ESMA for transparency and settlement rate failures, what are you up to?
3: Uh, Well, as I mentioned, I'm doing a piece of research on securities processing and derivatives processing market practices. So um, if you're interested in that, please drop me a line, um, which is just my name, Virginie, at fintechfirebrand.com. And you can check out my work on www.fintechfirebrand.com as well.
1: Brilliant. Well, uh, Joe, Virginie, Sean, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, And as always, uh, to the audience, thank you for listening. Do get in touch with uh, any feedback and uh, we hope to um, see you next time. Thanks again. You were listening to There's Always a FinReg Angle podcast from Global Custodian.
0: Stream on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or catch up wherever you get your podcasts from.